five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. So this is the first episode with space investors. By the way, we will have more of these too. But a special kind of space investors. Spaced Ventures is setting up a platform where regular people can crowdfund early-stage space startups. The founders Aaron Burnett and Brent Arsenal will tell you all about it during this episode. For full disclosure, I'm an advisor to Spaced with regard to evaluating potential investments. Please enjoy my conversation with Aaron and Brent. Hey guys, it's time for another episode of the Space Business Podcast. Today I'm joined by my friends Brent Arsenal and Aaron Burnett from Spaced Ventures. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. Guys, Spaced Ventures. Well, it has the word ventures in it, so we obviously know it's about investing in some form, but why don't you guys tell me more about what makes Space Ventures special and different from venture capital firms? Yeah, sure. I'll jump in and start. You know, So what we're really trying to accomplish with Space Ventures is, is solving a few different problems. But you know, what really makes us unique is that we embrace and just you know bring in as many of the public investors as we can. And we utilize a few kind of interesting exemptions to do that. That's mechanisms and financial products and things like that. I won't bore you with that. But really what we want to do is connect all the space enthusiasts or space geeks, as I call myself, into the industry, allow them to have meaningful access to companies uh, by investing and actually being a part of the new space industry and, uh, you know, putting humans into space eventually, you know, not just individual, but, you know, taking all of humanity and our economy into space in general. So, you know, that's really what makes us totally different. In addition, right, we, we really focus on the early stage space companies, right? Uh, this is a perfectly situated to where we can bring in you know, companies that are maybe a little bit too risky for venture. Uh, maybe they're just a little bit ahead of the curve, but we're really doing some really cool things and allow us to diversify risk across a large number of people utilizing different mechanisms to allow for investing with the public and things like that and, and get, get all of us space geeks involved early on. I have to chime in. When you said public investors, just because I sit in Europe and in Europe we have big governments, you don't mean like public investors as in terms of governments. You mean retail investors, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's a great distinction. Yeah. When I, 
when I say public, I mean, you know, the technical term in the U.S. is, you know, a non-accredited investor. There's distinctions between accredited investors and non-accredited investors. <laughs> the majority of the world qualifies as a non-accredited investor. Um, so anyone can invest. Um, and yes, it would be a retail non-accredited investor. A visual yeah. way to think about how space ventures is in the grander capital formation scheme is if you think of, of capital formation as a bunch of gears and engine that is driving one another. I view as uh, space ventures as a, a very small gear in the middle of all of this driving three or four different things. One is we're driving and democratizing access for the public to get involved in investing early on where it's difficult. We're also driving another gear for, as Aaron said, um, startup companies that are probably pre-VC, often pre-revenue. And then the other thing is we really feel that we're part of the greater institutional capital formation where we plug into follow-on investors like VCs, like private equities. And that's one thing that we believe we solved with this platform with the help of the SEC and FINRA in the United States, changing the rules and making financial products that we raise under more compatible with follow-on investors. So we feel that we are a kind of a pre-processor to institutional capital. I'm going to put more detail there so because we're throwing around these terms accredited investor, which people might not know. If I remember correctly, and this is the type of stuff we learn in these regulatory finance exams that I, I'm sure you guys have taken. I've, I took once upon a time a long time ago. I think this is something in the US where to be quote unquote accredited, like it would be a personal family where you earn at least like $200,000 or something like that, or have like a net worth of like a million dollars. Is that roughly right? Yeah. So the accredited investor definition is actually undergoing some slight changes and nuances and potentially is kind of opening up. Uh, but up to date, it's always been $200,000 per year in income or a net worth of a million or more minus like some of the technical rules. You know, I won't give the exact definition, but that is one way of determining if you're an accredited investor or not. Uh, there are also some new rules that allow for people with like Series 7s license and things like that to, to be an accredited investor. And the reason behind this is quite timely, as we saw a couple of weeks ago with, you know, this short squeeze of GameStop from public investors. And, yep. and really what that's about is um, the SEC, which is a regulator in the United States, put rules right after the crash of 29 to protect retail investors, to protect the public. After uh, 1929, a lot of people got hurt because there was no rules in place. So they put relatively draconian rules in place. And what that did was, for many, many years, excluded the retail investor. And partially the saying, the rich got, gets richer and the poor get poorer came from that. And, and they felt disenfranchised over the last 100 years or, or 90 years. And the SEC came in in early, I think around 2013, and said, okay, that might be too strong of a statement where um, uh, people of a certain um, economic level cannot participate in private markets. So what they did was they tried to create a, a middle ground and said, okay, you can... you." you you can invest in private equity, but we're going to limit the amount of capital that you put in. So we do see this democratization both in the private market and the public market. And there, there's really good conversations going on. And should we regulate 
this further because, you know, with with the short squeeze, which is a, a method used by sophisticated Wall Street hedge funds and banks now because of social networks and the interconnectivity of the retail market, they have they can accumulate enough capital to do similar things. So we're going to see a lot of conversations in you know the next year or two about should we should we regulate more or should we democratize more? And it's a really fine balance. It's hard for the governments to get it right. If I understand it correctly, so where we are right now is basically so to invest on the space ventures platform. Uh, people do not have to be accredited. Obviously, you accept the accredited investors as well, but you do not have to be accredited. And furthermore, there is still rules in place, if I heard you correctly there, that they also can't go and sort of like bet their entire life savings on a space venture investment. There's sort of like a certain limit they could invest with you guys. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's actually a pretty, it, it's not too complicated, but there is, it's, a, it's a small algorithm to say, you know, how much you can invest in any given year. Um, and in essence, what that number kind of looks like for most people is in, in the 2000 to $2,500 range per year that you can invest. That can go up if you if you make enough. And, and it, you know, like we have a calculator on our site and other platforms have calculators on their site to help make that, you know, kind of calculation easy for folks. But yeah, it's, a, you know, anyone, quite literally anyone can invest. That, that calculator kind of helps determine how much you can, you know, risk in any given year, because that's really the, the whole point here, right, that the SEC is trying to protect folks. So, you know, let, let anyone in, but make sure we're not, you know, making some, you know, unwise decisions financially by over leveraging or putting too much into very risky investments. Because at the end of the day, no matter how cool and stuff space can be and uh, well, any real private investment, early stage investment, right? It's risky. It, it, a lot of companies fail for way too many reasons to even list. So there's kind of a nice mechanism that allows for access, but also to create some protection for investors as well. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's kind of nice, right? As you say, because some of the biggest money has been made recently in recent years in the private markets. And, and really, it has been exactly this area that the non-accredited investors were excluded from. So it's it's quite nice that they now have a, a way to access that. Do you already, I think your site is open, correct me if I'm wrong, for sort of pre-registration. Do you already have sort of an idea of like um, what kind of crowd you're attracting? Like, is it a lot of college kids who think space is exciting? Is it like something across the board? Is it a lot of engineers? Is it people who work at space? I don't know. Is there any sort of like interesting trends you're seeing? Yeah, there, that's a great question. Back it up a little bit to give a little bit of my background. Like I, I'm not a, an engineer or aerospace engineer or anything like that. I'm just a space geek. I saw just like everyone else, Falcon Heavy, the first one live stream take off and, and the boosters come back and land side by side. And quite literally my brain broke. Like I just couldn't figure out how something so science fiction-y could be real and I needed yeah. to be a part of it. And so the background there helps to understand the types of people that we have. We have some folks that are uh, engineers at Lockheed Martin and uh, fill in the blank aerospace company, SpaceX, Blue Origin, what have you. Um, and we get a lot of traction with that kind of stuff on our on the marketing materials we put out there and, and things we share out on the internet. Um, and then, you know, there's others that are just young people coming out of school and they just want to be a part of it um, or, or older and, and accredited investors that have always been a space geek. I think Brant kind of falls into this category and he can tell you that story, right? You know, sitting in the closet, you know, uh, watching uh, pretending to be in the Apollo module back in the day, right? The space geek and space enthusiast is a very kind of a universal interest, right? Not everyone is a space geek, but it kind of comes from all walks of life, all different countries and things like that. So while it is, does tend to be folks that are interested in technology and have kind of an engineering understanding it's that's definitely not exclusive to that so the types of folks really are very varied yeah we also had an uh, initial theory on 
what our market would look like. And if you compare that to other broad-based platforms like ourselves, like WeFunder, Start Engine, Republic, that are really a broad-based platform for any product from sunglasses to jet skis, things of that nature. We kind of analyzed our market. And I've always said, if you look at a, a typical person interested in space investing, it may be someone that is actually a credit investor that don't know or realize they're a credit investor, which is a really interesting segment of the market. I always uh, talk about uh, members of the IEEE being a, a sample of that market. If you think of, that's the largest professional organization in the world with 450,000 members worldwide, I jokingly tell everybody, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, that there, out of that 450,000 members, there's 450,000 space geeks. I'm pretty sure of that. And within that, the income level of that type of individual probably puts most of them in the accredited investor uh, arena, um, which allows them to invest a little more and have a little more freedom. So we think we're in a really good market. Um, Aaron in the market growth marketing team has done some experiments on growth marketing and, and, and paying to get people on the platform. And we're really excited with the initial numbers. We think we've been saying in media that we're going to be the largest retail marketplace for space investors globally. And the numbers indicate that that's very possible. Very, very cool. And, and and Aaron, you started mentioning the sort of the background story and that you're not originally from space. I think actually none of the three of us are shamefully originally from space, but we're all space geeks. Uh, I totally agree with that. How did you guys um, get this idea and how did you guys find each other? How did you guys decide to do this? Yeah, I'll, so I'll, I'll kick that off and get, we kind of start a little bit, you know, really the genesis, my career is all in marketing and, and, and community building and things like that. The genesis of my space story is, you know, what we've referred to already, the Falcon Heavy. Uh, in fact, I don't know if this is interesting to everyone out there, but, you know, my wife and I chose to move to the Space Coast in Florida just so that we could, we, we saw the first one live stream and we wanted to see the next two in person and we were able to see that including the last one that was that night mission that um, we got to see that out in the middle of the ocean uh, but you know driven by the interest and wanting to be a part of it right that you know that's what really got me driving and trying to get into this industry I've also been investing for a long time since I was 12 years old I've had a brokerage account not many not many 12 year olds have brokerage accounts uh, that were you know a custodian brokerage account but still a brokerage <laughs> no, account no, no they do. <laughs> so the game, so the yeah, game now, now it's kind of normal, <laughs> right? It, it's just like a normal thing for everyone to have that, you know, back, that was kind of weird. So I've always known and been interested in investing. So you kind of see these two interests of mine merging together um, right around the time uh, Reg CS becoming more and more popular. And I'm starting to see opportunities with private companies and that's where this this drive happens. And along that time, right, I'm also talking with space companies and folks like uh, Brant, right, because he's in the middle of transitioning, trying to get into the space industry as well. And, and we met up uh, originally, found each other on LinkedIn in kind of small groups, and we, we, we spent months trying to figure out what we were going to do. And, and I said, hey, Brant, you want to join and, and make something interesting here together. And because uh, I think this is really, really great opportunity. He did his own due diligence and eventually <laughs> history <laughs> happened, right? And we, we set this up and started really building this out. Um, I think Brant's story is pretty interesting though, uh, his background. Yeah. So in, in parallel to Aaron discovering you know, how he was going to get involved. I started way back wanting to be an astronaut as a kid in Canada. And, and you know, the 
being told that the only two real paths were a fighter pilot um, or a PhD. And because Canada only has five jets that we have to share, uh, I'm joking, we have more than that. Um, it, it seemed like a, a better um, or a more likely road to, to do uh, academia. So I did my undergrad in the 80s in neural networks. Uh, I was lucky enough to find a textbook book by Carver Mead that wrote a book on VLSI and neural networks, and I found that fascinating. And then I did my postgraduate work in Scotland in neural networks. Um, funny enough, I re-engineered um, procedural code uh, COBOL into an object-oriented representation, and the code came from the European Space Agency. At the end of that research, I applied to the Canadian Space Agency for an astronaut, got a rejection letter, still have it on my wall in New York, and <laughs> fell into finance like like you, Raphael. And 30 years, started at J.P. Morgan, uh, went to Morgan Stanley and and, and Barry Stearns and, and Lehman Brothers, and specialized in risk and, and trading um, systems and, and technology, and had a wonderful career. And I was at a, a hedge fund, my last company, uh, Lightpoint, which was a cloud-native, massively scalable trading and risk system uh, that we were selling to hedge funds. And I was at a hedge fund in San Francisco about two years ago. And the hedge fund did VC on one side of the shop and, and, and hedge fund on the other side. And I just asked him what they were doing for VC. And he said, well, we're looking to get into space. And I just laughed. I said, what does that mean? That, that can only mean Elon and, and, and Richard and, and Jeff. And they said, no, there's hundreds of space companies. And I was just flabbergasted and excited. And more, I was just kind of embarrassed that this thing just flew past me. So that was my, my eye-opening. And I came back to New York and started plotting my exit of fintech into, into space. And I thought it was very simple. I thought I would just sell Lightpoint for a couple hundred million, just like Elon did, and do whatever I like. Um, it kind of happened like that. Not exactly. The uh, minus a couple hundred million. And luckily, I met uh, Aaron with some ideas. I thought I would probably get in VC, private equity, um, or even get involved with a, a pure space play. But um, th the path took me here. And it's a really good problem to solve. It's been validated. Um, Aaron and I were going to bootstrap the company, which we did. But we actually got some early VC money from strategic VCs, uh, including Dylan Taylor, uh, that thought we were very strategic for the industry as a whole. And we're finding support everywhere. Um, un we thought maybe we'd see some resistance or, or some defensive posturing from VCs, but we're not seeing that at all. We're seeing very much a lot of support um, and and uh, encouragement from the industry. I think that makes sense. And, you know, um, speaking as a VC, as a seed stage VC specialized in space myself, I see you guys as highly complementary. And in fact, I see you guys as so complementary. I guess you guys see it the same way that uh, I'm on your investment advisory board. <laughs> Should be noted here because I think you know. As again, I think you guys plug a gap in the market, sort of in the pre-seed, early stage, early seed stage, stage, which then naturally flows into the seed stage of um, of venture capital. Yeah, and in fact, that we always say, Aaron and I always say, once our portfolio companies or our clients get to a stage that we feel they're ready for you, Raphael, or, or one of our other partners, we'll be the first one to march them right to your front door. Our business model, it behooves us to do that because our business model, we do for payment, we do take some equity. Uh, Aaron and I would love to take all equity, but obviously, we need some operation capital and and we'll, we'll probably ratchet that up but it's so synergetic that you know as soon as these companies are ready we're going to march them right to your front door yeah and and uh something to you know add to that as well right is that space is like an expensive thing to do right now <laughs> right it's the costs are coming down but i think uh, unlike um you know unlike some industries where everything's strictly competitive and of course there's still competition in space you know i just the way we kind of look at it is there's 
a lot of money to be raised. There's a lot of innovation that needs to happen if we're ever going to go to the moon and Mars and all that other stuff in a commercial sense. Um, and uh, with that in mind, there's plenty of opportunities. Having said that, right, we, we're now one of the things that we're thinking about is, and you mentioned this, the, the IAC, what we call it IAC, it's the Investment Advisory Committee. Brant and I, no matter how geekish or enthusiastic we are, or maybe even Brant, Brant's got a lot more kind of engineering mindset than I do, but no matter how good we are at that, we, we need as much help as we can get because at the end of the day, we want to protect investors too. We want to give them the best opportunities that are out there. And there's hundreds of space companies, which I think is always a surprise to people, sometimes even in the industry, that there are hundreds of space companies out there. So what we're trying to do, right, is send folks through our investment advisory committee to really make sure that we're giving the public the top 10%, right? Sometimes in the industry with regulation crowdfunding, it's kind of a negative connotation of, well, if, if they can't get money in VC, they'll go to Reg CF. But that's not the case here. The reality is, is Reg CF exists be, to be able to help all these early stage companies to be able to get the best of them. And that's really what we're where we're focused is the top 10% of space companies uh, bringing them out. Yeah. In fact, the companies that don't get, we have two levels of filters, an internal filter. Uh, and I'm not sure if Aaron mentioned, but we, we initially had nearly a hundred companies apply to raise capital on the platform for our inaugural listing. And we took that number and whittled it down to a, a group of companies that would, would get in front of our investment committee. What we want to do is take the companies that didn't make it and be, be constructive for them as well. And that is take all the feedback from our investment committee, including you, Raphael, and make that into feedback for those companies. Because some of them a lot of them have one aspect that, you know, people are looking for. Either they have a great management team that are highly motivated and very enthusiastic and or they're in a market that we feel is very lucrative, like compute or earth observation or something that we think is going to turn into something. And maybe they even, you know, are close to MVP or a product that they're ready, ready to go. Typically, they're not at revenue or, or post revenue because th that would suggest they're maybe ready for VC. But, you know, those companies that don't make it, we, we try to be very constructive. Uh, and in the future, we'll be sending, you know, the top 10 percent that don't make it probably to an incubator or an accelerator that we're partnering up like CDL or Techstars in, in Los Angeles. But it's really kind of a constructive no, not a destructive no. And I think, you know, that, that should produce even more companies down the road. I can confirm that from my experience so far. You're absolutely right. I think it's typically like, it's typically fixable. And then it's it's great if you can help them fix that. But so I think what's nice for me as, again, as a seed stage venture capitalist, you, you take some of the work of my hands, right? Because you're basically out there providing deal flow if all goes well. And so, which then poses the question, where do you guys get the deal flow from? Like, how, how do you find the companies or how, how do the companies find you maybe? That's a great question. So, you know, there's a lot of companies uh, doing cool stuff. I think, I think one of the metrics out there is something like 100 or 150 new space companies coming in every year. Um, and it depends on where you're seeing that. But great uh, partnerships or, you know, unofficial partnerships with, with accelerators that exist out there, right? Because everyone needs, everyone needs that seed or pre-seed stage capital coming out of accelerators, folks like, uh, you know, CDL, Techstars and things like that. But then also, you know, <laughs> part of what we do is try to provide a lot of education and data for the industry with our with our space base and that really gives us the ability to see almost every single company. I mean, I'm sure we've missed some, 
but we have spent quite a bit of time looking at hundreds of companies and we track 1500 right now we'll be you know adding to that list we probably I, I i assume that we're probably close to 80 90 of the industry with that number we look at them all individually so <laughs> basically if we ever need to go find a, a company we just go into our own data set and say okay you know this was a really interesting company we liked when we originally looked i wonder what their capital plans are if they're looking for some some uh some more raising uh or you know some seed funding or what have you so there's a variety of sources but we see a lot like you know, one-to-one, right? We see them all coming through our data set. What we've started is a product called SpaceBase, which is, uh, for lack of a, a better word, Crunchbase for space. But it, it starts as a very proactive data acquisition process. Of course, a lot of the data we're looking for is very opposite to Bloomberg and Reuters, where you have pl- public encoded data. This is private data embedded in news articles and stories and websites. So to pull it out, you need sophisticated machine learning AI tools, which some of them exist and we're experimenting with them. But in the short term, we, we just are going to brute force it through people. So we have offshore, we've, we've found very, very high value resources that we call data quality engineers that are perusing um, key websites and and news outlets every day they run processes looking for um, new companies, looking for new data on companies that we have. Um, And then we're actually creating a new uh, ticker tape for which it sounds a little counterintuitive because a ticker tape is usually for fast moving data, uh, but we're creating a tick, ticker tape for private companies that you'll be able to um, see new events like uh, a revenue event, a funding event, a team management uh, event, a new partnership event. But we're dedicated uh, a lot to this effort. And for another reason, not just for the good of the industry, but our platform users, while they may visit the platform weekly, we want to make sure they have tools and data daily to to come back and and start doing their research. So we think that's going to add a lot of deal flow, a lot of information for both us and the industry in general. And and that data is available for free on your site or how does it work? Yeah, yeah, it's available right now. It's pretty public. Right now we put out a public, just kind of, it's basic data set right now. It's pretty simple, kind of a few lists of of, of pretty simple data. We're building out the robustness of that data. But yeah, it's it's entirely public. Um, Maybe at some point in the future, as we start to add more depth, there's, there's opportunities for you know paid accounts and things like that and power tools and and all that all that great stuff but the real purpose for us is to be able to provide the education because what i found as a relatively new person in the space industry what i found is the economy the markets the industry itself rather than just the technology was almost itself like rocket science i mean it wasn't it wasn't all that easy to understand how the markets worked so we want to make it so that someone coming to the site doesn't have to spend months like we did trying to understand the, the industry we want to be able them to understand it at a much more visceral level quickly and then be able to take that on. Yeah, I think we're going to have um, a tool that's very, very useful to our uh, probably three levels, one to the public, one to member uh, members of the platform, and then a super user version that might be for institutions like VCs, private equity firms. Um, but we're going to try to give as much value to the to the individual as possible and certainly not get as far as, you know, the 
traditional market data providers, you know, the fifteen to two thousand dollars a month type of thing will will avoid that that type of model. Happy to hear that. And, and so, okay, so that's going to be a great tool, as you said, also for you guys to sort of proactively find companies. But let's say if somebody like you know a founder, or sort of pre-seed stage, is listening to this podcast, and you know they they want to apply to to Space Ventures because they think they might be a fit. Like, do they go to to your website, or how does that process work? Yeah, so we have we have a couple of uh, of avenues to you know get on our radar. Um, one would be to just get on our data set. So you know we we take information, extra information, right? It's kind of like uh, it, being in private companies. You do tend to you know like when people will volunteer some of that information that wouldn't necessarily be on a web public website or something like that. So we always take that. The other thing is there's actually an application link. So we kind of have a couple different areas on the website right now that you could go in and just drop an application for, um, you know, to apply to actually raise on our platform. And right now what we're doing is narrowing on, narrowing down our first tranche of, of companies that we're going to launch um, for our platform here in the next uh, month to two months. And, uh, you know, so any applications that come through, uh, we review, they go through several layers of kind of due diligence and screening, uh, and then eventually through the IAC and then onto the platform, assuming all's go- all goes well. And so let's just dig a little bit into sort of what kind of companies can apply, because that's a question always that also we ask ourselves for as venture investors when we set up the venture fund, sort of like, what is a space company for you? Is it sort of like all the subsectors of space? Is it like, for example, I don't know, like I have a drone company or I have a widget company at my widget you may be able to use in space or sort of like, how do you delineate the, the definition of space companies? Unfortunately, there's not just a, a strict, easy black and white kind of answer on that, uh, right? Of course, there's a little bit of variation. Now, what we like to see are things that generally, from a, from a principal perspective, things that generally do have a harder time raising kind of traditional VC. So if you are, I don't know, like an Uber or a DoorDash and you have a GPS, I, you know, I think that's fine. You could go ahead and it, you probably will be able to raise money somewhere else. Um, you know, we don't really exist for that per se. We more tend to focus on space infrastructure and things like that. Now, having said that, there are a lot of companies where you don't have to just make a spacecraft to be able to raise on our platform. There are a lot of companies that focus on space data, for example, right? But it's very space-centric. So it tends to be a little bit touchy-feely when as far as like trying to find a line. And part of that will develop as well, right? As we start to see more and more space companies come in, maybe we can find some more areas of focus. We try and hit all the different sectors of space as we define it, and then try to really provide value for early stage companies that they have a hard time going to traditional kind of software VCs and things like that. Yeah. And there's an, also another lens we like to put on it for ourselves and that we recommend issuing companies put a lens on. And that is, is this attractive or can you put a narrative around it that it's attractive for the public? Can the public understand it? So for instance, and I I personally love multi-axle reaction wheels, but I don't know if the public is into that. And and maybe you can make that interesting. Um, I think it's challenging. Um, And then there's another aspect, which is really interesting when you contrast VC versus this platform is B2C companies, companies that actually have an end consumer that is a consumer, uh, not a business like tourism, things of that nature, often could get a customer as they get an investor. So it's a great marketing tool. And we, we like to highlight that to companies, the few companies companies that are B2C, which um, I think we know a couple of them. It's actually an interesting point. I never thought about this in the context of space, but because this is so exciting to so many retail investors anyway, um, but, but like you correctly say, Brand, I mean, there, there just comes a point because it's a deep tech sector where 
you know, the knowledge will stop. And frankly, that's even the case for me and I know for you guys as well, right? Because you can, you cannot be an expert on setcom and antennas and rocket engines. And it's just impossible. But you guys thought about sort of like providing sort of basic, uh, I don't know, education modules or maybe via partnerships or something like that. I mean, you guys probably know I, I have my sort of basic space introduction course, which is on a very high level. But I'm not saying it has to be my course, but there might be something that your community might appreciate, right? In terms of getting some education on the sector. Yeah, and, and there's a huge aspect for education. So, you know, even step out of space, you just think about Reg CF in general, there's education that goes on in understanding securities and, uh, you know, understanding like uh, just Reg CF rules as well as just, uh, you know, securities. What's a convertible note? What's, you know, what's a what's a common class C share? What is that, right? Like there's, there's education that happens there. Um, and then there's education that happens specific to space. There's actually a variety of education. We want to provide all of it, not necessarily branded by ourselves, but just be able to kind of aggregate that for our investors. So there's going to be opportunities to help partner with more of the traditional finance education pl- uh, providers, as well as the space uh, providers like yourself and others. And then one other thing that I think where we probably live as far as what we own and, and, and provide with content is more on the space finance and space market stuff, right? That's, that's where we shine yeah and, and and just a little more on that and and because we're a, an entity regulated um and we follow the rules of finra and the sec so there's certain things that we have to do very properly and that is to be careful about how we talk about the market and specifics but at the same time we want to educate the market um especially around portfolio theory for instance um we would love to talk to our uh, membership base that we view the space market as subsectors and these subsectors, some of them are uncorrelated um, in the relative grand scheme of things. And we feel that they should be investing, not putting all their eggs in one basket and kind of putting it across these different subsectors. Now, we want to educate our users on that, but we have to be careful on not calling out certain names and and, and making advice to certain investments. So um, we're going to put a lot of thought into that with the guidance of FINRA and SEC and the rules. So and that's an important point. I think people might not realize that what you guys are doing is a regulated activity and that you know you have all of the uh, required certifications. So actually, I'm listening to that. And of course, uh, portfolio theory, I know f- very well from my previous life. I mean, is there something maybe also that you might at some point in time, if it's not too complicated from a regulatory point of view, offer like a product for like people who are too lazy to to basically pick the investments themselves? It's like, hey, here's the Space Ventures basket. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. In fact, Aaron and I, I've trained Eric to, or Aaron to now talk about financial products. So this is, we, we view now this is not, and, and I never viewed this as a, a, a Reg CF platform. This is a platform for investing uh, for the public. Now, uh, Raphael, you probably know just as well as most most finance people, there's more than just one reg under the Jobs Act. And there's there's Reg CF, which has um, certain limits uh, and certain disclosure uh, requirements. And then there's Reg A, which is another regulation that and they all what they all have in common is you're allowed to solicit the public. Um, where Reg D 506B, which we're is going to start to sound crazy to some of your listeners, but that that's the regulation that the traditional VC uh, raises under, and it's for accredited investors. And you're not allowed to uh, to solicit the public. Uh, this whole Jobs Act is about soliciting the public and combining a solicitation to accredited and non-accredited. So Aaron and I have a roadmap that we have several products. 
plan, Reg A, which is a very interesting uh, uh, solicitation pro um, product that you're allowed to, you're permitted to solicit the public. It actually has two levels of capital. If you think about CF of only going to five, Reg A goes to 20 million allowed to be raised uh, per year and 75 million. So What's the the other aspect of that is you do you are required to do more financial disclosures annually. So there's a little more of a burden on registration. And then there's such thing as a 506 C, which is very similar to a 506 B, but you're allowed to do solicitation and platforms like AngelList use that. And then finally, having some type of index fund or being able to buy uh, shares into the portfolio that we have from the way that we were compensated by all the companies that we've raised for is another product that we're thinking about in the future. So this is really, if, if you think about all the products and what they have in common, is really four companies that are early stage, seed, almost pre-revenue, uh, pre-VC, and have an aspect of raising from the public. And so what does that translate to? Like, what do you think was going to be sort of like the average raise for a company that's, that's, that lists and fundraises on, uh, on space? Yeah, so th that's a great question. So really what we're targeting is um, the, the, there was a new exemption to the, the Jobs Act, uh, or sorry, there's a new set of rules that were kind of designed to improve the Jobs Act that just went through and just got voted on in November. They, it takes a, there's some time process that takes them to go live and they'll be going live on, on March 15th. Those rules allow for raises above a 1 million. Previously, you could only raise a million via Reg CF, for example. And, and, and those new rules really is what created the interest in this uh, for us because most space companies, specifically seed stage space companies, pre-revenue, um, they're trying to raise between two and five million. I mean, we talked with dozens of space companies at this point in this kind of stage of fundraising, and it almost always comes back somewhere in the range of two to five million. So for us, that's what we're really targeting. We believe we shouldn't have any issue being able to raise those those funds for those companies. Some that may be more like data focused and things like that may be able to get away with less capex expenditures. They'll be raising two million. Some that are raising, you know, more like building rockets and things like that may need to raise 5 million. There'll be a little bit of a range. My guess is the average falls right in between there. Yeah, and, and Aaron's right in saying um, the CF product that we, we have was very, we felt very dependent on the new SEC rules. You know, having a million, uh, Raphael, you know, you could probably buy two valves and a hose with a million dollars. So we helped lobby the SEC and Congress with a bunch of interest groups to, to get this passed. And because of you know the, the recent spotlight on regulation and protecting the public, it's still very challenging in Washington to get this stuff done. But um, I think there is a sentiment to, to try to level the playing field for the retail investor. And with the limits that Aaron talked about earlier, we feel that you know they're they're protected and and they there's some risk limits in place that that uh, make sure that they they have reasonable risk reward. But so what does that mean? So let's say you know there might be companies out there which are not so capital intensive or you know they 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 have a very first phase uh, where they might need just half a million dollars. Is that going to be too small for you guys, or can you also? accommodate them? You know, generally speaking, I'm, uh, we want to provide capital for all those companies. One of the reasons we, what we just tend to see is the companies that are progressed enough to really, we feel go to the public, uh, tend to be in this more seed stage. What we're finding though, as we start to talk more 
uh, with companies is there are some there are some intriguing pre-seed companies that are coming up. Uh, you know, they're they're kind of like uh, if you use the TRL scale that NASA uses, right? Technology readiness level. They may be in the two to four range out of ten, where you know maybe that something could work on our platform. We're not you know we're not sitting here. We can only raise high amounts, right? Per se, that's not that's not our limit. That that's not our you know requirement. What we want to do is create efficiency for all space companies moving forward. The biggest need for us is that two to five million kind of bucket, which is why we're targeting them. Uh, but there's going to be some interesting ones, and I don't want to make any promises or anything like that. But there will be some interesting ones I'm predicting coming down the line that are in that more two fifty to five hundred range that will not be our you know. We'll probably won't specialize there. Yeah, and another behavior we we would love to see, and, and I predict it it may happen, is when companies are beyond our threshold or our natural demarcation, which is is uh, pre revenue at revenue, and they move on to Raphael, maybe to your fund or or to Steve Jurvetson or or to someone like that, is for those raises to allocate back a chunk of capital to space ventures. And why would they do that? Because if you think about the economics on a reg uh, 506B, the, the cost of capital is actually a bore by the, the LPs, not by the issuing companies. On our products, the, the, um, the cost of capital is bore, uh, bore by the issuer. So why would someone want to do that? What our theory is, there is a natural... Um, excitement around the the public getting involved earlier and having that fan base. And as Aaron always tells me, really that 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 cost of capital is marketing. It really is a marketing cost of capital. Uh, and I'm 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 looking forward to someone raising a hundred million or or two hundred and fifty million, like Firefly or Dylan at Voyager, and saying, "Hey, we'd like to allocate five million to Space Ventures to raise that capital from the public." That's really when I think the value proposition has hit its maximum. So that brings up the questions of the check size on the other side, sort of like you know the amounts that the investors can invest, and sort of like what's the lower limit there? I mean, I assume there's no upper limit, so to say, or well. There's going to be some upper limit imposed simply by the situation, but is this something where, like, the Reddit army, like, some guy who you know who wants to spread like 500 bucks uh, over five space companies, is that going to be possible, or how is that going to work? This is basically the you know the opportunity specifically that you're describing is exactly why kind of break CF exists. Every issuer gets to set what their lower limit is, right? They could say it's a, a lower limit of two thousand, or they can say it's a lower limit of fifty dollars. It'll probably be in that range. Generally, what you see in the reg CF industry is somewhere between 50 and like uh, 250 tends to be the lower limits. We want, you know, we, we try and encourage as low a limit as possible. But, you know, the issuer wants to encourage accessibility. So they want to be able to have their mom, their, <laughs> their friends and all that stuff to actually invest in them uh, and be able to kind of have, you know, the, uh, the folks that are cheering them on. And so it, reality is like your, your, your check size could be $50. Your check size could be 250 or, or 2,500, depending on your individual investment limits per year. And, and part of what we talked about, harkening back to what Brant mentioned with portfolio theory is if you only have 2,500 to spend in a year, you shouldn't be putting it all into one company because you're taking an incredible risk. Uh, you're, you, you know, because there's so many reasons that company could fail, no matter how good the team is or the product or whatever. You know, what we suggest is, you know, if you do only feel like you have 500 to spend, then try and split that up between $50 at 10 different companies, if that makes sense to you, if the, those limits are allowed uh, by the issuer. So, yeah, the, the numbers range a little bit. 
but the expectation is that, um, and, and the averages in the industry are in that 50 to 250 range as, as a lower limit. And then you can kind of, it's not unlimited on the top end, generally speaking, but, uh, you know, it can be larger check sizes in the 25,000 to 50,000 kind of range. And then I assume what appears on the cap table of the startup is some sort of like, like a line with like space ventures. So they're not going to have like a thousand names on their cap table, right? Yeah, in fact, that's what we alluded to earlier. The original rules uh, passed in, in, in 2013, 2014 didn't allow the use of a, a special purpose vehicle. So there was some initial structural problems. And Aaron and I spoke to a couple of space companies that raised capital in those early days. And they had two general experiences. One was raising capital was quick and, and fantastic. And, and the service they got from the platforms were great. But the nature of the cap table of having 2,000 retail investors on it was very toxic in, in terms of follow-on capital. So that was one of the topics that we we lobbied with the SEC and FINRA, the industry lobbied to get that fixed. Um, that was key for capital formation and us participating. And that now has been done. Um, so you, you're right. Now what happens is there's an SPV single enter, entry on the issuer's cap table. I didn't realize it used to be like that everybody appeared once upon a time. And, and, and I must agree, as a venture capitalist, if I, if I received the cap table from the startup and there was like a 2,000-line spreadsheet, I'd just close it and like not look at it again. Right. Well, and Aaron, and Aaron and I said from early on, we said, if we can't solve this problem or if the industry can't solve this problem, it's hard to recommend to an issuing company to do this because we're we're almost making them toxic to you and other VCs down the road. So thankfully it, it got passed and now we have this structure that is more standard, more compatible. And I, let me just add a little bit of, you know, kind of principle to this, right? It, if you take a step back, again, it comes back to what Brant was alluding to with, we're part of an industry here, right? We're not the, the, the solution to everything capital. We don't believe ourselves to be. There's a lot that needs to happen from capital industry in general to be able to make this work. So we always have had a, a, a prerequisite for our platform, that it works well, it plays well with other capital, it plays well with other players in the industry. It's not a, you know, we want everyone to just say, Reg is the only way to go from here on out. There are some people that will make that claim and they'll say, you know, VC's dead kind of thing. That's not who we are. We're, you know, what we believe is that there's way too much money that needs to, to be in the industry. Uh, <laughs> that we, there's no way one of these uh, exemptions or one of these mechanisms is going to be the only solution. There's always going to be opportunity to, 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 to play well together and get early stage, very promising early stage companies funded and get them to go, you know, all the way through the, uh, you know, the public, you know, all the way to being public, all the way through that private company to public company life cycle. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the principle behind that. And I realized I forgot to ask, we're throwing around so many of these um, expressions like yeah, from the U.S. security laws that I forgot to ask about the geography. Is there any limitations sort of either for companies and or investors geographically? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So there's going to be kind of a rollout for us. Um, so technically speaking, with the SEC regulation, crowdfunding is only available to U.S. companies. You know, you'd have to be formed U.S. company and things like that. So we do tend to focus on U.S. companies for now. Plan will be to allow to uh, support for other non-U.S. companies, but that would require, you know, us being in jurisdictions like, you know, Europe and U.K. and, and that kind of thing as well. Um, so that's, you know, rollout is U.S. companies focus uh, on that side for now, though there are options. And we do know that space companies are planning to they have in their plan sometimes to, to open up U.S. shops and things like that. So there's opportunities there. Um, 
And then on the investor side, uh, there's definite opportunities to have not quite entirely global investors in there. We will probably be launching with U.S. and very soon after that, adding other you know support for other countries for investors as well. Um, but that, that's much more open-ended. You can have as long as you pass some kind of simple KYC AML, understood KYC AML steps, you should be able to invest, uh, have investors from a variety of different countries. Yeah, so a little, a little more on that, because Aaron and I have had some very preliminary uh, conversations about a global pa- platform. And, and Raphael, I'm, I'm sure you appreciate as much as I do about starting broker-dealers up in, in different jurisdictions. Yes. It is hard. It's not super scalable. But we, we do we do recognize Europe and the Middle East and, and Africa is super important, and so is Asia and possibly Australia. So we've kind of broken the world up in a couple of areas that we think would be a great place to be. Possibly uh, Europe is next for us, but we want to focus on uh, uh, you know America and, and North America now to get all that right, to create a good design pattern for the rest of the world. Although we do view it as a global economy and, and we, we're going to need to be in, in more than one place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I can certainly sympathize with that. If Once you come to Europe, it's almost a, a separate regulation for every country. So it's it becomes... Uh, quite quite work intense very soon. Brent, for, before we wrap up here, I wanted to ask a question to you because of your past life of hedge funds and so forth. So at the other end of the fundraising spectrum or timeline, and speaking of retail investors, we obviously have the trend with SPACs at the moment. Any, any thoughts on that or generally what you see in sort of like institutional investors and other retail investors and what's happening with space in the public markets? I, I got quite a few thoughts on that. And um, I'm happy to say um, a very, very large... Um, hedge fund um, in the top five invested in space ventures last week. Um, can't go public yet, but they they are very interested in the space industry. They view it as the new infrastructure play. Um, I think, um, Raphael, you'll be quite impressed when you when you find out who it is. We're, and we've had a theory, I've had a theory, I've been sharing with Aaron for quite a while, that a lot of my colleagues in, in the hedge fund space um, you know, it's hard to find alpha in the public markets now. They're they're starting to look at more private credit, private equity. Um, so they're really the, the the hedge fund is turning into a more diversified uh, alternative shop. Uh, and I think there's going to be more. Uh, and as you know, their 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 big interest for the last ten years have been infrastructure. I mean, the KKRs of the world, the Aries Management, the Apollo. They invest a lot in infrastructure through different asset classes. And last year at Milken, I asked a couple, do they view space as the new infrastructure? And it was a resounding yes, absolute yes. So we'll see that capital come in at some point. Um, we all know that usually comes in a later. It comes in big, but it comes in late. Um, and then on the public side, it's interesting. I, I was asked to write an op-ed on pass to the public market Um <clears throat> And there's there's an incredible amount of interest in SPACs. I think you know my view on on ways to go public is any company that is a good company can choose the way that it goes public. Um, you know there is there's a lot of friction in the I, the traditional S one IPO process, and I think price discovery is proving to be not accurate, obviously. Um, and and the SPAC I think is lacking the the due diligence that the S one provides. So I think, you know, the conversation that uh, the SEC is having with um, NYSE and um, the NASDAQ about direct listings is a very interesting kind of medium level of risk reward of doing um, a public um, 
uh, listing. So I, I think we'll see more of that. I, I think we're going to see a lot of SPAC before we see that. Yeah, I agree. I guess the wonderful thing about it is that compared with even just six months or 12 months ago, there's suddenly so many ways that the retail investor can get involved in the space sector, whether it's through you guys or uh, buying like uh, SPAC listed companies. Guys, we always finish up here on the, on the same question, and it's going to be the same for both of you. Um, I assume you guys like science fiction as well, although if you don't, that's also fine. And I'm just uh, curious to sort of like hear about some of your favorite science fiction. It can be books, movies, TV series, anything. Yeah, I'll start because, uh, you know, I think like most everyone, I, I'm a big fan of The Expanse, obviously. Uh, I, I did read a lot of uh, Orson uh, Scott Card, uh, and that that's, I mean, those books are like <laughs> very long. Uh, so I haven't read them all, but I've read a bunch of them. And then, um, you know, one thing that I've just recently done. So while I'm working now, what I'll put up in the background has been my most recent kind of, you know, uh, video that plays in the background is the old Stargate SG one, uh, series, which mm. I, I grew up on. It was one of the first things I have memories of like, uh, watching that with my dad on a Friday night, my dad and my brother on a Friday night. So kind of have that playing in the background, some really old, terribly done, terribly produced TV series, but it's, just, you know, it got better as it got older, maybe uh, arguably, but uh, you know, it's one of those things. Those are, those are the ones that I, I enjoy. I'm older. So mine's going to be more obscure. So uh, Raphael, you may remember uh, space uh, 1999 when, when the moon was knocked out of orbit and they were all trapped flying through this the star system. Do you remember that one? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a while. So I loved that. And my next door neighbor had the actual uh, ship for action figures and I, I tried to relieve it from him a couple of times, but he kept finding it in my room. Um, but Space Odyssey uh, Foundation, and I'm ashamed to say, I, I've been kind of out of the sci-fi for a while and I came across Expanse and I said, how did I miss this? So I just finished it actually. It was awesome. The Expanse is certainly a, a lot of people in the space community love the Expanse for sure. Is there anything you guys see in like the Expanse or other um, works like that that you think should exist in real life and you would like to see on the Space Ventures platform? You know, I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Obviously, like propulsion technologies, I don't think there's anything close to what the uh, what they have there on the Expanse. I do know of at least one company that's doing that's doing it an Expanse inspired uh, technology. Actually, uh, and you know, maybe more for a PR thing than for anything else. But uh, there's actually, yeah, a lot of cool stuff. I, I do think, for me, I think maybe just because I'm like. I don't know, like explosions kind of thing. Like I like to see the propulsion stuff. Um, you know, I'm always really curious to see some of that. So a lot of the ion technology or, you know, the ion propulsion technology and some of the other things that are coming down the line are always really interesting to me. But uh, yeah, I, th I think there's going to be a lot coming in. I don't know if it's exactly out of the expanse or not, though. I have two two interests and, and they're connected. One is natural resources and mining, like our friend Dan Faber started doing. Uh, I, I'm really interested in that. Uh, and then on the finance side, I'm very interested in a space commodities exchange that we all in the near future, or hopefully I can, we can go long or short moon water versus Mars water and buy those futures and options, which I'm sure is quite far down the road. But, uh, you know, we hear a lot of crazy overreaching ideas for distributed ledger technology. Um, and, you know, they're using it for everything that is just crazy. But I think a inter um, a solar system exchange using distributed technology would be very interesting. 
So and that's a great note to finish up on. Brent, let's do that. Like in a few years, we'll start the first ex- extraterrestrial hedge fund that's bringing together our past and, and, and current life. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Best of luck for the launch and uh, we'll speak soon. Thanks, Raphael. Thanks for having us. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.